Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. the first thing that comes to your mind okay church religion religion um religion god 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 jesus uh pastor organized religion no mosque okay mosque and it, why is that because we're muslim that's all yeah mormon mormon okay why do you say that i'm a member do you think the church is making a difference in society today very arguable i mean i think the church is seen as somewhat irrelevant today? Not as much as I think they think they are. Not, not substantially, no. If you don't care and you don't like have a moral compass, then religion's not going to make a difference. I think fewer and fewer people are going to church and I think it's just because there's a lack of connection with it. I think it still makes a difference for uh, how people build um, communities. To some people's lives, yes. D does the church matter to you? Yes, but I don't go to church. Jeez, I'll yeah, have to figure I out a pathway know. here. Is it making any kind of difference in your life like, <laughs> because of your background? Or no. Does it make a difference in your life? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, how so? I suppose I if I cut I'm through here. I believe I'm a better here. person because of going to church, and I don't know oh. where else I could hear talks about forgiveness or love oh, or those kinds of things. I certainly don't hear them anywhere else. So do you go to church at all? Uh, not church, no. No, do you go to church at all? No. 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 I don't go to church. You don't go? Yeah, I should though. Yeah, why, why, why not? I just find it really boring, to be honest. What would have to change with the church that would draw you to, to attend? A lot of things, I think. Um, uh, I guess I'll need some kind of uh, revelation that, that I, I, uh, it was right for me to go to church. I'm not sure. No. I don't know. Ah, uh, quite a bit. I don't believe in God and all the whole things. I'm more of an evolutionary kind of guy. Okay. So maybe <laughs> get rid of the God aspect of things, which is probably not going to happen. Well, greetings to all of you here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online. And of course, those of you who are meeting at uh, one of our other campuses out in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, down in South Calgary, and also in Northwest Calgary. God bless you all as you seek to be uh, a blessing in Jesus' name to the people in your part of the city. Would you just bow your heads for a moment and open your hands before him and just ask the Lord to prepare you now to receive what he has for you through the message and to have the courage to respond in whatever way he calls you to. Let's just pray together. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. And Lord, I ask that you 
would just anoint, that you would just strengthen and guide me as I now communicate the words you've given me to your church. Before I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Some time ago on a flight to Ottawa, I sat next to a young woman from Texas and we got into a discussion about Christianity and the church, something that happens quite often when you sit next to me on a plane. And she informed me that she was a Christian, but wasn't connected to any particular church, and quite matter-of-factly um, told me that her faith was a private affair between her and God, and she saw no need to be part of any particular church. Rolling Stone's frontman Mick Jagger affirmed her perspective when he said, Jesus Christ was fantastic, but I don't like the church. It's a viewpoint that's quite common these days among Canadians and as we saw in the video among Calgarians as well. As I talk with people about this, my sense is that many people, they write the church off without having a clear understanding of how Jesus felt about the church or the impact that the church has had and continues to have in our world today. The church is far more than some quaint, self-serving country club. If it was, it would have died a long time ago. And so continuing on from last week, I want to make a case for why the church matters. The first and most fundamental reason I believe the church matters is because I believe in Jesus Christ. And the church really matters to him. In Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church. It's not our church. He said it was his church. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus loves the church. It was his idea. And so those who attack the church or ignore the church or reject the church really have an issue with him. You see, many people see the church as a place you go to, a worship service you attend. You go to church. But the church is not a destination or a building. The church is people. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are the church. If you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you are automatically a part of uh, Christ's universal church. But the Bible calls you to be engaged in a local fellowship or expression of the global church. Church like Center Street Church, for example. Christ simply does not give us an option. In his kingdom, there is no room for solo or private Christianity. I believe the church matters because it matters big time to Jesus. And I not only believe in Jesus, but I believe him in all matters of faith and life, including his ideals for the church. Furthermore, I believe the church matters because it deals with the eternal issues of life. As I pointed out last time, we live in a society that behaves like we're going to live forever. And that this life is all that matters. You open a magazine or a newspaper, turn on the radio or television, or just surf the net, and the predominant focus uh, is on the temporary, earthly things of life. Like money and possessions, and position, and fame and power. 
You check it out sometime. There are few voices. In in fact, I dare say no voices other than the church that challenge us to seriously ponder the eternal questions of life. Like what happens to me after I die? Is there a God and can he be known? In Psalm 90, the psalmist says to God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The psalmist says numbering our days or facing the fact that we will die one day can be a teacher of wisdom. It has the potential of waking us up to the fact that what we're investing our life in doesn't, uh, if, if what we're investing our life in doesn't align at all with what will matter to us or God in the end, we are given the opportunity to stop and to change the trajectory of our lives. And that's why I believe the church really matters because she challenges us to stop and to think about the deeper questions of life, to number our days and to give our lives to that which is really going to matter to God and to us in the end. Thirdly, I believe the church really matters because it is God's vehicle for bringing peace, purpose, and justice to our world. Now, some people, when they hear that, they kind of get their back up because they refuse to embrace Christianity. They reject the church, in fact, because they believe that it's actually religion that is the cause of conflict and war. A few years ago, McLean's Magazine posed this question on its cover. Is God poison? The article describes a growing movement that blames religion for every problem on the planet, from child abuse to war. Now, there's no denying that Christianity has played a part in some wars and persecution. The Crusades, the Inquisition, the Salem witch trials were repugnant. They were abhorrent. And we need to apologize for them and do everything possible to ensure that they never happen again. The fact is, from the days of the early church, Christians have not always represented Christ well. And the church has not always been Christian or Christ-like in the true sense of the word. And I say that because even though these conflicts may have been fought in the name of religion, often the true motive was just plain hatred, revenge, greed, or some other self-centered political or ethnic motive. In other words, the issue is not the Christian faith or even the church, the way that Christ envisioned it to be, but a failure on the part of Christians to live out the true faith. For example, Dr. John Woodbridge points out that in, in 1215, rather, Pope Innocent III instructed people that if they went to the Crusades, uh, they could earn their way to heaven. In the same way that Islam teaches that if you die in a jihad or a holy war, you will go to paradise where wine will flow freely and young maidens will serve your every need and desire for all of eternity. I'm not here to speak to the teachings of, of Islam, but I can say on the authority of the Bible that what Pope Innocent decreed 
was contrary to the central message and spirit of the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says very clearly, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Our salvation is a gift from God that we receive by faith, not by anything that we do, least of all, killing other people in a holy war. All that to say, when church leaders or people who call themselves Christians say things and do things that are neither biblical or Christ-like, the blame should not be cast on the scriptures or on Jesus or even Jesus' ideals for the church, but rather on those who are living or teaching contrary to it. Jesus said, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. In other words, it is the condition of man's heart that causes conflict, that causes so often war, not the teachings of the Christian faith. It was atheism that led to the slaughter of over a hundred million people in the last century alone. Just consider all of the people who were killed in the Second World War, a conflict that was escalated into a world war by Adolf Hitler, whose thinking was poisoned by the atheistic views of Nietzsche. Or think about all the people who were killed through the communist revolution over the past hundred years in Russia, China, North Korea, Cuba, Vietnam, Cambodia, Ethiopia, and Nicaragua. Or how about the brutal crackdown by communist governments in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Tiananmen Square? Look at the massive genocide of the Ukrainians under Stalin or the Tibetans under Mole, where tens of millions of people were slaughtered. You see, these disputes, these wars, were certainly not the fault of religion but rather an atheistic political philosophy. Even the so-called religious wars, if you examine them closely, they are deeply rooted in politics, in ethnic pride, hatred and revenge, and greed over land rights, or the quest of a radical extremist friend, fringe to dominate a people group or a nation against their will. Now again, I'm not suggesting that genuine Christians were never on the wrong side of an issue. Nor am I denying that down through history people have done evil in the name of Christianity. But that does not mean that Christianity or the church is the cause of it. What it means is, is that true Christianity was misrepresented. However, you know, when Christianity, even when it was misrepresented, God in his time would eventually raise up the right people to call those on the wrong side of an issue back to repentance and back to God's truth and God's ideal. It is true that the church was behind the terrible witch hunts, but Christ raised up Friedrich von Spree, who spoke against it in Europe. He raised up Reverend Increase Mather, who ended it in Salem, Massachusetts. We know that Members of the church, along with Muslims in North Africa, initiated the slave trade to the New World. But Christ raised up William Wilberforce, who almost single-handedly fought successfully to abolish the slave trade in Europe. And of course, raised up President uh, Abraham Lincoln 
to help end the practice in the United States. Even in our day, those who hurt the church through false teaching or blemish the church through financial scandals, God continues to raise up godly leaders who call these people to account, bring correction and align the church with Christ's ideals for the church. In fact, historians will tell you that wherever Christianity was lived out authentically, peace, goodwill, and justice prevailed. In Acts chapter 2, we read that believers in the early church sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone as he had need. They cared not only for their own, but also for those in the community. Verse 47 tells us they enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And this has been the case uh, down through history. Rodney Stark of Baylor University in his book called The Rise of Christianity, he says Christianity grew so rapidly in large part because Christians were such nice people who were willing to sacrifice themselves out of love for each other and also for the people in their community. Something um, that was really uncommon and relatively unknown in that time. For example, during the two great plagues that swept through the Roman Empire in 165 AD and the other one at 251 AD, each killing a third of the population. I mean, that is huge. The people of that day would literally throw the sick into the gutter to die. they just leave them there. It was the Christians who risked their lives to take these people into their homes and to nurse them, many losing their life in the process. Historian Will Durant says Christians were known as people who helped widows and orphans, the sick, prisoners, and victims of natural catastrophes. And that has been the heart of the true church down through history. Even today, it is the church that's at the forefront in providing help and care for the disadvantaged, the hurting, the poor, and justice for those caught in human trafficking. The reality is in the midst of all of the conflict that has raged down through time and continues to rage in the world today, you will find that there is a community where there is love and unity and peace between people of all ages, races, ethnic origins, walks of life. And that is Christ-centered churches. Despite its failures, and there have been many, the church of Jesus Christ has laid a foundation of healing and health and freedom. It has taught that every person matters, has purpose, and challenge people to step out and to use the talents, the gifts, and the resources that God has given them. This great faith has motivated excellence in every field of endeavor, including some of the world's most profound art and music and science. It has undergirded an ethic of faithful hard work and an ethic of sacrificial service and giving. And folks, that's why I believe the church matters. Because it is God's vehicle 
for bringing true peace, purpose, and justice in our world. Furthermore, I believe the church matters because it aspires to reflect the character, the values, and the life of Jesus. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described the character and the values and the lifestyle of those who would follow him as Lord and King. He said his followers will increasingly live a life characterized by humility, meekness, mercy, and peacemaking. They will be increasingly patient, gracious, gentle, and kind. Seek to do what is good and right in the eyes of God. They will refuse to nurse a grudge, but be quick to make things right. They will give to the needy. They will pray for their enemies. They will forgive those who have hurt them. They will invest what God has given to them, the time, the talent, the money that he's given to them. They will invest it in things that matter to God and not solely on their own interests and desires. Now in obedience to Jesus Christ, the church has taught and sought to model these virtues and these values down through the centuries. One way that Christ and his church impacted the world was elevating the value of human life. For example, like the late Dr. James Kennedy, he points out that back in the ancient world, human life was exceedingly cheap. Child sacrifice was a common phenomenon. In ancient Rome and Greece, abortion was rampant. And people would often abandon their unwanted babies in the forest or throw them into nearby rivers. But then Jesus came. He took children in his arms and he blessed them. In Matthew 19, he said, let the little children come to me and don't forbid them. And since that time, children in the church have cherished life as sacred, even the life of the unborn. In ancient Rome, it was the Christians who saved many babies who were abandoned, who were deformed. They would go out into the woods looking for them. And they would take them home and they would raise them. Similarly, in our day, despite a virtual media blackout, Christians are helping thousands of unwed pregnant women who feel unable to raise this child they've just had or are about to have. And they're providing support and life-giving options for their child, including adoption, through the ministry of thousands of crisis pregnancy care centers. In countries everywhere, down through time, the church has established orphanages, nursery homes to care for orphans and abandoned children. Churches establish schools everywhere, including the remotest jungles, teaching children and adults that they matter to God, that God loves them, that they are created in his image, and in the process, teaching them to read and write. In addition to this, almost every modern college and university, including Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, were originally established by the church 
Children increasingly became a high priority in the life of the church as well. They're no longer just, you know, pushed to the, to the outside, but they were, uh, they were ministered to with age-appropriate teaching and shepherding, practical help for parents to invest in the spiritual formation of their children, church facilities earmarked just for them. Those of you who are investing in children and youth, or you're sensing God prompting you to do so, God bless you because children and youth really matter to God. They really matter to us too. Furthermore, Jesus' concern for the sick motivated his followers not only to pray for the sick, but to provide health care for the sick. As a result, medical centers and hospitals sprang into existence all over the world. They had virtually not existed before the church age, at least not the kind that provided quality health care. Even today, thousands of Christian physicians and dentists and healthcare workers, some from our own church, donate weeks and months, even years of their time and their abilities to give medical aid in foreign lands that desperately need it. Jesus' compassion for the poor motivated the church to respond to the needs of the poor, doing more than any other institution in history to alleviate poverty. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, when you feed the hungry, when you show hospitality to strangers, when you visit the sick or those in prison or you clothe the naked, you are doing it for me. And so down through time, the vast majority of orphanages, food banks, inner city agencies that minister to the poor, the abused, the disadvantaged, as well as world relief agencies have their origin and support from the church. You see, this is why the church matters. In obedience to Christ, we encourage one another, we spur one another on toward love and good deeds and to reflect the character and the values and the life of Jesus. I mean, think about it. What compels a surgeon with a lucrative income, a safe, secure, comfortable lifestyle here in Canada to work here in the West just enough to support himself so that he can go and live in a rundown place in a politically unstable country, exposing himself and his family to disease like the Ebola virus, and work in a poorly run hospital with ancient tools and few resources to treat a few hundred people every year. Why would churches like ours invest substantial funds to resource over 35 international churches to care for the orphans in their community, the poor, the imprisoned, the abused? Why would we invest to resource dozens of agencies in our city that are committed to ministering to the forsaken, the abandoned, the poor, and the disadvantaged? Why would churches like ours hire staff, invest substantial funds and volunteer time to care for the needs of people in our community whose marriage or whose family is in crisis or are struggling to make ends meet or to care and minister to the needs of, needs of new Canadians through our New Canadian Friendship Center or to care and minister to, to over 100 people with special needs and their families? I'll tell you why. 
because the unique and distinct Christian truth and message held by Jesus Christ and his church is that people matter to God. Regardless of their age, their gender, their race, their abilities or their disabilities or their situation in life, every person has dignity, is valuable, and needs to be loved and treated like a child of the king. Though the church is often accused of hypocrisy, research by such agencies as the Canadian Center for Philanthropy has clearly shown that church-going people contribute far more money and volunteer time than non-church people to the care of children, the care of the elderly, food for the hungry, housing for the homeless. The reality is, folks, a world without Jesus and his church is to a very large degree a world without a lot of charity. And that is why the church matters. It aspires to reflect the character, the values, the life of Jesus himself. Fifthly, I believe the church matters because it aspires to be a loving and healing community. I'm fully aware this is not always the case of certain churches or with certain people who call themselves Christians. We do not always love, accept, or care as we should. But that is not because God's design for the church is wrong. It is because too often we buy into the thinking of our culture. In our culture, the sign of true success, you think about it, the sign of true success is independence. To come to the place where you don't have to depend on anyone for anything. This has been fueled by growing wealth and prosperity and has resulted in people becoming more private and more proud, judging their own worth and the value of other people on the basis of what they have and what they don't have, on the basis of what they've accomplished or haven't accomplished. The Church of Jesus Christ, in large part, recognize they need the grace of God in their lives and for their eternity as much as anyone else. While some may still struggle with pride, there is no basis for pride in the church. No basis to assume that I'm better than you are or that I don't need you. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, the Apostle Paul describes the church as a body. And he says to the church, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Every part of my body I fully appreciate and glad it functions. And so it is in the church. Christ followers are all needed to make the church what Christ intended it to be. And when we don't do our part, something that Christ wants done isn't getting done. 
The Bible says followers of Jesus are to care for one another, love one another, host one another, honor one another, serve one another, instruct one another, forgive one another, build up one another, encourage one another, comfort one another, pray for one another, show kindness to one another, give to one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, hurt with one another. Can you see why private Christianity isn't an option? We can't obey these commands unless we're in relationship with others in the church. The church of Jesus Christ consists of people who recognize they need one another. In Acts 2, 47, we read that the early believers met together in the temple courts to praise God and to hear the apostles' teaching, even as we're doing right now in this worship service. They also met in homes to pray and care for each other, encourage, challenge, and hold each other accountable in the faith. It's a wonderful model to follow. And so when a person is searching for answers to that vacuum in his soul, the church is there to give an answer of hope in Christ. Again, remember, we're the church. We're there to give an answer for the hope that we have in Jesus. When a person is facing a crisis of some kind, a health crisis, a financial crisis, a personal crisis, marriage crisis, the church is there to surround them, support and encourage them with the promises of God's word through acts of service and prayers of faith. I believe the church matters because it's a family where I can find true community. A community that draws its direction, motivation, and strength from the character, the teaching, the values, and the life of Jesus Christ himself. And then finally, I believe in the church. Because it has changed lives and continues to transform lives today. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus Christ has been and continues to be in the business of changing lives. In Luke 19, we're introduced to a dishonest, corrupt, and greedy tax collector named Zacchaeus. But then he met Jesus, and Jesus' love and forgiveness humbled him and changed him into a new creation. This once greedy, selfish swindler became an honest and generous man who not only willingly gave a significant portion of his fortune away, but paid back four times the amount that he had cheated from others. That's what I call conversion. That's transformation that Jesus came to bring in people's lives. In the fourth century, Christ changed the heart and life of Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest thinkers and writers of the ancient world. When Augustine was a teenager, he indulged in a sex-filled, hedonistic lifestyle. He tried to ignore the claims of Christ by refuting Christianity, but he soon discovered that his arguments just weren't holding up. And after reading the Bible, 
He surrendered his life and his future to the Lord. And many of his teachings continue to impact not only the church, but the world today. Christ also transformed the life of C.S. Lewis, professor of o- at Oxford and Cambridge University in England during the first half of the last century. Lewis was an agnostic who d- denied the deity of Christ for years. But after carefully studying the evidence, in intellectual honesty, he submitted his life to Jesus Christ and ended up writing numerous books in defense of the Christian faith which have helped untold numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. These are just a few select examples of hundreds of millions of lives that have been transformed completely through Jesus Christ and through the fellowship of his church. He did it in his day. He has done it down through the centuries. He's still doing it in our day. In fact, I want to introduce you to a couple who came to me some 14 years ago. They were in deep despair personally. They had all but given up on their marriage. Watch this. Growing up, my mom took my sister and myself to church um, when I was young. I had heard about Jesus, but I didn't really understand who he was. I didn't have a relationship with him. And um, by the time I was about 12, my parents' relationship, it was pretty obvious that things were falling apart and that it probably wasn't going to last forever. And we stopped going to church. And um, within about five years, my parents did separate and they divorced. I just felt lost as a child. I I had no sense of self-worth, self-esteem. I was ashamed, actually, as I got older and became more aware. uh, I was just ashamed of who I was. And um, there was no forgiveness in my life. I I couldn't couldn't get that from my father at all or my family structure. Uh, Like I said, divorce was so commonplace and it was threatened all the time. And you either went with your father or you went with your mother. And after that, I just kind of lived my life um, try to do the best that I could. Um, you know, I was a very independent person. Um, you know, thought I could do everything on my own. Friends and family always thought I really had it together and that kind of, that kind of thing, but I really felt out of control. As life progressed, I got married. I had two sons from that marriage. And, uh, the old pattern started to repeat. Picked up the apple, didn't fall too far from the tree, and it wasn't more than four and a half years later that that marriage had finished. And uh, my wife ended up with the, my ex wife now had ended up with the two boys, and there was so much pain with all of that that, uh, you know, that just God was a long ways away from me. Well, George and I met um, and uh, through friends, and we dated for a while, but The relationship really wasn't great. Um, We were trying to blend a family. My husband had two children from a previous marriage, and uh, we had a lot of struggles with that, a lot of struggles with um, in-laws, that sort of thing. And, um, but we planned a wedding, and we decided to go through with it anyway, even though it probably wasn't the smartest thing to do, but we chose to do it anyway. But within a month before Halloween, I had moved out, and we, I was seeing a lawyer, 
was, it was time to, to end this. So um, we, I, I, I did file for divorce. And we had separated from each other for about a couple of months and we decided that we didn't really want to end it, end it, so we decided to get back together, but on a few conditions that, uh, like I had said to him, if we're going to get back together, we need to do something different. And I want to go to church. Will you come with me? And he said yes. Come the following September, um, I lost my job at the family business. With um, we just bought a new home. Um, I was pregnant with our first child. Carolyn left. And she came back with the family and friends from Center Street Church. And it said, uh, we're, we're going to work this out. We're going to exercise God's will here. And I was kind of, still kind of giggling about God's will. But I looked my wife in the eye and I said, are you here for me and you? And she said, yeah, I am. I said, okay, we can do this. We really started to um, try to learn about what Jesus' will was for us and, and started to really search about what um, Jesus' promises were all about. And uh, we decided to make that commitment and become Christians. And we put Christ at the center became a realization several months later that that was the great counselor for our marriage. That's what saved our marriage. We centered on his truths and his promises for us in our relationship. It's amazing how God has changed everything and I just feel so much love for him and for my family, my children, my friends. Um, my life group, this church, um, these people have changed my life. And I'm just thankful for God's love and his gift that he's given me and that I have accepted it. And what an amazing gift it is. I love my wife so much that uh, Christ has put that in my heart to Given what we went through, I, I wouldn't have banked a, anything on this working out and feeling the way I do now about my wife. I just love her to death. Uh, she is the center of my life here on earth, and we do everything through Jesus Christ. Um, every day it's stronger. Every struggle we go through binds us together. And in faith and hope and in love, uh, God is there. He's there with us every step of the way. All we had to do was ask, and he, he came alongside. Amen. Amen. You know, George, near the end, just made reference to the fact that he just didn't have much hope that the marriage would survive. And, um, you know, if you had asked me back then if I thought this couple was going to make it, the human part of me would have said, not a chance. But you see, I have a friend. His name is Jesus. He's the creator of the universe. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God. And he is more than capable, more than capable of transforming lives and marriages today. 
And I knew that if they put their trust in him, I mean really put their trust in him and received his forgiveness and his grace and asked him to change their lives and their hearts, their marriage, their lives would never be the same again. And so when they got to know the real Jesus and they truly humbled themselves and acknowledged their pride, their sin, their selfishness and accepted his grace and his forgiveness, asked Jesus to invade their lives and agreed to follow him. What you have heard in that video became a living reality. And 14 years later, their marriage continues to be strong and growing. Not perfect, of course, but they have made huge strides. They're doing very well. And next to their relationship with Jesus, they will tell you that the biggest source of strength that they found was the church. The teaching, the mentors, the small group of people who loved and challenged and served them during those rocky periods. And now they're giving themselves away and have been for years in love to others. They've introduced others to Jesus. They've led a small group themselves. They're serving those who are less fortunate than they are. They're helping others to strengthen their marriage. And I share that story with you not just to illustrate how Jesus and his church can change lives and marriages, but to remind us that the Bible uses marriage to illustrate Jesus' relationship with the church. Jesus is depicted as the groom, and he loves his bride, the church. And when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ, we become part of this church called the bride. And unfortunately, because of sin, the church is full of broken people. And like in marriage, issues of pride and personality conflicts and selfishness and greed and anger, they begin to flare up and can result in a lot of hurt and pain and broken dreams, division and ultimately separation. And when that happens in marriage or when it happens in a church community, some people say, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm never going back to that again. But others take a different pathway. Instead of walking away, they accept the fact that there is no perfect church. And in the words of Henry Allen, they choose to forgive one another for not being Jesus. They acknowledge that there's only one Jesus and we're not him. And friends, that's a decision that we all must make. We can spend our lives looking for the perfect church. We can sit on the sidelines with our long list of what's wrong with the church. Or we can stop trying to find excuses to keep ourselves at a safe distance from the church. Instead, in obedience to Jesus Christ, we can commit ourselves to not just go to church, but to join others in being the church that Jesus wants his church to be. My challenge to you in closing is step out. Get involved in making the church the masterpiece that Jesus wants it to be. Be all in. Hold nothing back. 
I'm convinced if we all link arms and join together to be the church that Jesus wants us to be, God's Spirit will be so present and so evident in our individual lives and in our community groups and in our church ministries and our worship services like this that we will experience what the early church experienced in their day. And that is people in our sphere of influence will be so blown away by the change that they see in us, by the love that they receive from us. They will want to know and give their lives to the Jesus that we love and serve. And they want to be part of our church and our passionate desire to love God, each other, and our world in Jesus' name. May it be so. Oh, may it be so. To the glory of God and for the sake of those who need the Jesus that we know and love. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Our Father, thank you again for the reminder of your ideals for the church and the difference your church has made and is making in our world. Lord, you never intended for us to go it alone. You established the church so that we might encourage one another in our faith and spur one another on to be all that you created us to be. Lord, I ask that you would forgive us for judging and grumbling against the church. Forgive us for not always representing you and your church well. And so we pray again, if there is something in our church, oh Lord, that needs changing, that you would begin by changing us. If our church needs more prayer, Lord, give us the burden and the passion for prayer. If our church needs more fellowship and hospitality, give us the courage to reach out, to invite others into our home into our community groups, our ministries. Lord, if we need more love and grace, give us your supernatural love and grace. Lord, if we need giving, give us the heart of generosity. Lord, if our church needs more people to serve, give us a passion, Lord, to invest our lives in the lives of children, youth, other adults to serve them with all our heart for we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus and now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace in the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.